Hello, hello, Chora, hello, hello, hi, hi, yeah, good, hello, That's, that feels a little bit warm, hello, how are we all, are we having, good, good, this is, uh, so hi, my name's Ray Shipley, um, I'm, a, I'm a comedian, which means I'm used to much darker rooms than this, uh, and not a lectern, right, like the, the two things that I'm not quite used to, welcome to You Write Funny here at the Word Festival, are we having a good festival so far? Hooray! Um, that's very good news. Um, I am too. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I'm very excited to be here and to be introducing some uh, some funny people to you, but all of them have insisted that they're not that funny. Um, but I believe differently, so you can, you can work that out yourselves. Um, I believe in you. Uh, but first, what I thought we'd do is we'd just make sure that we know uh, how to how to respond to funny stuff, because uh, because sometimes people just smile, which is very nice. Um, but if you all smile kind of collectively at once, just do that now. It doesn't make much of a noise. Uh, it's quite it's just a bit creepy, isn't it? It's all just like a it's like a wee just a wee click sound like. Uh, but but what you can do is is laugh, which you have practiced a, a little bit so far. Well done. Um, oh, good. Um, so so what I'm going to do is uh, just uh, it's going to be a bit weird, but we're going to push through because I think it's going to it's going to be good in the long term. Okay. What we're going to do is we're just going to all together collectively let out a little titter. <laughs> oh, see, yeah, that's. It's a bit too big, isn't it? Try it again. Just a, just a little, a little titter. Just a ha ha. Everyone, everyone, one, two, three. Beautiful. Uh, that was that was real heartwarming. That makes me feel real good. Uh, and it sounds much nicer than the, uh, which does sound nice, but not quite as nice as a titter. Uh, so it's a, now let's let's move that up. We'll go from a titter to kind of like a a a, a, a giggle. Um, do you want to try that? One, two, three. <laughs> this is just for my own am amusement. It's, it's really fun to listen to some people all be like, oh, I've never thought about my laugh till now. Um, oh, no. Um, and then there'll, there'll be one of you. One of you will have the laugh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing that. I won't point you out or anything. Do, do feel free to let it, let it really out, because I, I promise I won't, I won't make fun of it. I won't, but there is, it is great when someone... I have one of those laughs. I used to have a cackle, um, and then, like, that got trained out of me by people teasing me about a cackle. So, so I don't want to do that to you. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to feel like all laughs are valid, uh, all laughs are, are valid and important here in this space tonight. This is a safe space for all your weird laughs, okay? Um, so let's all try a cackle. <laughs> that's amazing! That, that's so cool! I love that. Uh, can we do a cackle again? <laughs> amazing. Um, that's, again, for my own enjoyment. Um, so, so today, as I said, we've got four writers for you uh, to come and share some of their work. Uh, it might be funny, it might be all kinds of other good things. You can smile, you can laugh, you can react really however you want. I just wanted to make sure you all feel warm, no pressure. Uh, so it is my very, uh, oh, I forgot the word. What's the word when you're very excited? It's my excited honour 
you can tell I'm not one of the writers. I'm just a librarian, actually. That's my only, that's my only connection to, to literary things. And you can tell I'm a librarian because of the vest. Uh, it's, it's part of the uniform. Um, they give you one when you sign up. Um, and and even, even in the library, I don't even get to read that much because uh, mostly what I'm doing is like checking people's CVs and, uh, and, like, and, and helping them use the photocopier and occasionally asking them not to like leave their half-eaten sandwich on the windowsill and instead put it in the bin. Uh, that's pretty much library life uh, in a nutshell. So, uh, right. Um, so, so we've practiced laughing. We know what we're doing here. We know that I'm not very literary, but these people are. So it is my, my great honor to introduce our first writer for the evening, um, Eric Kennedy who is the author of There's No Place Like the Internet in Springtime, which was released just in time for spring just now by Victoria University Press, and is the poetry editor for Queen's Mob Tea House, and he lives in Christchurch. So please put your hands together and warmly welcome Eric Kennedy. Good evening, everyone. Um, when I was asked to do this event, my initial reaction, and still my reaction, is what I do may be funny for poetry, but an important caveat. Um, yes, the book is called There's No Place Like the Internet in Springtime. That's what I'm planning to read out of. Funny title, possibly. Quite moving, also. The digital pastoral sort of collision. Um, but this isn't about anything like that. This is called You Can't Teach Creative Writing, which it's a tricky statement to sell at a literary festival, which is sort of premised on literature as an industry. But um, can you? Anyway, it, it's one of those poems that says something and then undermines the claim, so you get to have it both ways. So you can't teach creative writing. And yet, I'm full of practical wisdom. Like, I say there's good incongruity in titles and bad incongruity in titles. Good incongruity is refrigerator on a mountaintop. Bad incongruity is injustice in the toilet. But maybe I was born knowing this. And maybe I was born knowing that artisanship is a lovely coriam. Stress on stress on stress, stress. And maybe I was born knowing that it's better to invent parents to write about if yours are both real estate agents who go on cruises for fun. <laughs> That's if you decide to write an ambivalent family mood piece or a surly elegy at all, which I would counsel against if I was teaching you. And really, how are you going to see anything of Dubrovnik or Yangon in just a few hours with that white cruise ship floating admonishingly in the harbor, like the bleaching skeleton of a chopped down skyscraper? No, if you really want to see Dubrovnik, you're going to have to live there in the alleys and wines and mews. And that, metaphorically speaking, is my advice to you, writer, who wonders if writing can be taught. Move to Dubrovnik. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I read a Christmas poem every year now. Um, I'm not religious, I'm just a Christmasist. 
Um, this is, I've never read this not at Christmas, so usually people are feeling sort of sufficiently yuletide-y by the time I read this. So if you can imagine that it's mid-December. Um, it also, for, I'm from the Northern Hemisphere, so I have a whole different set of references about Christmas. I was going to say mulled wine, but no one actually has mulled wine in December. But you're on the beach, um, and you are you're going to have a pavlova soon. Yeah, so this is a spam Christmas um, to do with... Had a, a, a spam filter breakdown that allowed like 300 messages a day to come through to me that I had to manually delete one by one to train the filter to understand what spam was. So a lot of this is from that. A spam Christmas. Asian singles, Jewish singles, black singles, Nordic singles, singles from above the Arctic Circle will put a lucky sixpence in your Christmas pudding Take tinsel supplements to feel 30 again, to feel three again, to feel the age you were when you last got a present you loved. Start with a solid roof over your head with tinsel shingles. Fill the garden with tinsel fertilizer. Fuck like a tinsel snowman this season. Reverse mortgage the house with the tinsel-filled garden. Take a trip to Africa this Christmas and shoot a stripy reindeer. These storage devices will hold your special memories. A tactical flashlight is the perfect gift for someone dim, for someone who might want to be run over by a dump truck and survive, or be frozen in a block of ice and still illuminate a burglar. Not everyone who breaks into your house this December will be Santa Claus. That's why there are carbon fiber crossbows. Hang on, not crossbows. CrossFit affiliated gyms. <laughs> Dear patriots, shed those holiday pounds fast by enlisting in the army today. No one remembers how that Christmas cracker joke went, but the answer is an army marches on its stomach. Improve your golf swing, golf swingers, golf swingles, golf swingle bells. Please keep improving, especially at this time of year when those in need feel want most keenly. Learn new languages fast. Tinsel in Japanese is tinseru. Tinsel in Portuguese is urupel. Tinsel in German is lametta. Tinsel in Georgian is polga. Put the X-Acto knife back in Xmas. Put the X-Men back in Xmas. Put the Jaguar XJ back in Xmas. Put the X-Ray technicians jobs back in Xmas. There is a war on, a goddamn war on Christmas. So get your food delivered by drone. You don't have to be told how valuable your time is. And that includes your time on Earth. Get more coverage for less money by only singing religious carols, which are frankincense to secular carols, frankfurters. <laughs> Fool the police with this one easy trick. Eat 80 liquor-filled chocolates while crying on the carpet. In the bleak midwinter, inspiration goes. What's red and white and green with envy? A candy cane when it hears how I made $2,611 working from home today. Thanks.
And this is the last one from me. It's quite short. It has the title, Get a Pet with a Longer Lifespan Than Humans Have, which I think is good advice. Get a pet with longer, uh, sorry, with a longer lifespan than humans have. Treat yourself to a minimal expectation of sorrow for once. Think of your children inheriting $36 plus a venerable pet and how this will assuage their grief. Let it gaze at you in that easy way the immortals have. For you, eerie friend, I'll never cry and never pity, you'll say. And with the psychic energy you'll save, you can know yourself 10% better or learn to keep bees. Thank you. Eric Kennedy, everybody. Whoa, what a good start. So next up, we've got Megan Dunn, who writes about mermaids and contemporary New Zealand art. Her first book, Tinderbox, is, at the, is about the end of Borders Bookstores, Ray Bradbury and Julia, Julie Christie's hair, not necessarily in that order. So please welcome Megan Dunn. Thank you. I'm off to a flying start. Um, I'm going to read you two sections uh, from my brilliant career as a Borders bookseller. This is section one. Every day at Borders resembled the next. The daily roster was divided into one and two hour blocks, section, tills, main info. Staff consulted the roster each hour and changed squares. Do you have the story of P? A young woman asked. I stood before the computer at the main information desk. Do you know the author's name? No, but it's just won a prize. Do you mean the life of Pi? <laughs> Yes, that's it, she said. <laughs> I picked up a copy of Yan Martel's novel from the stack behind the main info desk and handed it to her. Thanks, it's a present for my mother. I thought briefly of the girl's mother, soon to be united with Yan Martel's novel, a union that never would have happened had the novel not won the 2003 Booker Prize. I wondered how long Martel had spent selecting his title. I imagine the life of Pi was more than just a summary of the novel's activity, of Pi's life, that the sound of each syllable was mysteriously complete to Martel. Yet I also saw how the title had left the novel open to misinterpretation. The story of P could have been a potted history of the customer toilets at Borders Islington. <laughs> the toilets were located on the ground floor between the start of fiction and true crime. The security gates beeped if a tagged book passed through the entrance to the toilets. Most thieves had the presence of mind to check the inside covers of the books for the white tags or chicklets that set the security gates off, but not all the books were tagged. The toilets overflowed with criminal activity. Teenagers took great delight in stuffing the bowls with wadded toilet paper. Then they graffitied the doors and walls, often with their own blood and shit. Junkies left used needles lying on the floor like broken fountain pens and the tails of used tampons dangled from the stuffed mouths of sanitary bins. The code for the toilet door was distributed by the staff member at the main information desk. The toilets are disgusting, customers often told me. I reserve my judgment. My threshold for disgust was high. Still is. 
In 2005, the Borders Islington management team finally instigated a new toilet policy. Customers had to obtain an in-store receipt to gain access to the loos. The code for the toilets printed at the bottom of the receipt, no purchase, no toilet. This strategy was a deterrent intended to keep out the illegitimate bums, teenagers, drug addicts. It also kept out John Ronson. The author, <laughs> the author who wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats was not a man happy to produce a receipt to use a customer toilet. In his Guardian column, he complained about the new customer toilets regime. He also complained about the staff member who policed the use of the toilets from the main info desk. Customers, cross-borders Islington and Currents. I collected up the driftwood once the tide had gone out and the store had closed. At Borders, reshelving was called recovery. Occasionally, customers solicited my opinion. Is this any good? Have you read this? A book picked up, its face turned to greet me, like the face of an old friend. I gave stock answers. It's been very popular. Oh, that's one of our best sellers. I haven't got around to that one yet, but it's on my list. But my, sometimes I was honest, I don't know. But my ambiguity was a repellent. Customers really chose a book that I couldn't fully endorse, yet how could I have read every title? How could I have been attracted to every cover? I had my own interests, my own preoccupations. In fiction, I found an illustrated novel about the adventures of an existential cat. I spent half an hour flicking through the book instead of shelving the nearby cart of recovery. The cat was just a wistful stranger struggling to assemble the intellectual jigsaw puzzle of life. When I went re-looking for the book after payday, it had disappeared. Surely not. Sold? No way. The existential cat wasn't Dan Brown. I, tr <laughs> I tried, poor old Dan Brown. I I tried countless times to relocate it to no avail. Borders was amazed the book could have been misshelved anywhere. To make matters worse, I couldn't remember the title or the author's name. I was my own worst nightmare. A customer. I didn't even have enough info to find it on Amazon. During my tenure at Borders, I grew to hate the bestsellers. A new Jodie Picoult felt about as sincere as a cheeseburger. Take off the wrapper and the moral dilemma lay in the centre like a gherkin waiting to be digested. <laughs> then what were you hungry for? Borders revolved around the seasons. I filled Valentine's Day displays to the brim with purple Ronnie mini books and sex checks. Easter, a line of fluffy chicks from Paper Chase. I like to decorate the tables with gift cards and other items of quirk. The shopper is a magpie. Mother's Day, more pink, more pastels, more chiclet, more Jodie. Is there any occasion Jodie can't rise to? <laughs> Father's Day, men in their sheds, a book of knitted socks, Dita Von Teese's burlesque in the art of the teas. Halloween, then stocking fillers. Eat shoots and leaves, why don't penguins' feet freeze? Victorian do's and don'ts for wives and husbands. The tills chimed, Santa came, then he went. Sex, always overstimulated. Paper cutouts from the pop-up Karma Sutra torn asunder. The story of, oh my God, why is this section such a fucking mess? <laughs> One day I caught a rare glimpse of some customers browsing the sex section. A group of teenage boys flicked to a large graphic image and asked, have you done this? <laughs> I didn't reply, but I had. <laughs> The timer went off. I feel like I've peaked early, but I'll unwisely go on and give you section two. 
The sales managers of Borders UK gathered in a small fluorescent lit room on the edge of London. It might as well have been Staines, a motivational speaker who looked like David Brent had been hired to help us think outside the box. I'm not making this up, this is all true. What if, he asked, it was the storyteller's weapon? What if we didn't promote the next Dan Brown book? What if we offered customers the chance to trade in their copies of the Da Vinci Code instead? They could choose other better books that were not written by Dan Brown. <laughs> At the time, I was jazzed on the idea. Radical. What if we stopped selling Jody next? The David Brent lookalike encouraged us to dig deep. What did our customers really want? We thought outside the box, then we crossed the street to the local Westfield shopping centre and we thought inside it. Our task was to compare field notes on our experiences as customers. Why was Apple so successful? Because it produced outstanding products? No. <laughs> because it had geniuses on the shop floor providing customer-focused retail experiences. As we journeyed back to our respective Borders stores, Christmas appeared like a mirage on the horizon. I made an extra effort to talk to customers. What made you choose this title? I asked the little old lady across the till from me. No one does men like Georgette Heyer, she said. <laughs> you have to read this, a male customer told me. What is it about that book, I asked. It's her, Lisbeth Salander. He exited with a dreamy smile. Clearly, the girl with the dragon tattoo really was smoking. <laughs> One day, as I replenished the large three-for-two table in the front of store, a woman held up Kate Atkinson's latest novel, entitled When Will There Be Good News? How's this doing, she asked. It's one of our best sellers, I replied. <laughs> it's been very popular. <laughs> she slapped the book back down on the table. While I read it from front to back, she said and there wasn't any good news in it. <laughs> the timer went off. <laughs> Megan Dunn, everybody. Are we having fun? Yeah. Good. Um, all right, so next up we have Chris Teeth, the author of How to Be Dead in the Year of Snakes, which won the 2016 Jesse McKay Award for the Best First Book of Poetry, and He's So Mask, published by Auckland University Press in March. So please put your hands together for Chris Teeth. Gotta. Um, so when I was asked to uh, do this event, um, I do have a poem that I normally would have pulled out um, except I've sort of been told to read that poem at an event tomorrow night, um, the Sex and Death Salon. So if you want to hear a poem about me playing Cards Against Humanity with my mum, you should come to that. Um, I'm pulling another poem off the bench, um, and I wrote this for an event at the National Library last year that was to um, mark the end of the six o'clock swill. Um, so this poem is called Wasted. <clears throat> a man approaches a woman at a bar or on the street, in the aqua jogging lane at their local pool, or at a mutual friend's cocktail fundraiser for at-risk youths. You know the type of man. He laughs about poor people while he plays golf with the president and insists feminism is the reason why some women aren't attracted to him. He's the man you've been told is a cad from the moment he appeared on screen, 
Waking from a sex-fueled night on the morning of his wedding day, only neither of the women in his bed is his fiancée, who at that very moment is being lectured by her best friend that this man is nothing but soap opera trouble. But she won't listen because a psychic told her she loves him, and her therapist concurred at $500 per hour. This is the kind of man who corners a lone woman minding her own business and whispers offensively in her ear, there's no such thing as the gender wage gap. Or, I've read your novel and it's derivative. Her response is swift, scripted, but natural. She throws her crisp martini right in his smug yet undeniably handsome face. What a waste of a perfectly drinkable martini. She barely touched it. And look at the expression of the bartender's face. Heartbreak, but also understanding. Because this scoundrel clearly deserved it. If the bartender had known what was about to go down, he might have suggested a whiskey sour instead. Sweet and eggy. That shit will not wash out easily. <laughs> Throwing a drink has a different meaning on each side of the bar. On one side, it's creation. On the other, it's how dare you. I suppose a drink is an appropriate thing to throw in someone's face, especially if it happens to be in your hand at the moment of insult. One really has a wasp nest at hand ready to put on a defending, but if someone dares antagonize you while you're clutching a wasp nest, then good luck to them. I suppose throwing a drink is more appropriate than, say, a bowl of chips. Only a monster would throw a bowl of chips in this economy. <laughs> These chips cost $12 and they aren't even hand cut. In all my years as a university student turned semi-professional barfly, I have never seen a drink thrown in someone's face deliberately or ironically, with or without a peppy catchphrase like, here's your Ponsonby bath, or catch this, Mike Hosking. <laughs> Yet, pop culture would have us believe that this is a common occurrence, a requisite skill of being cast on a reality TV show, the final audition before you become famous for throwing drinks in people's faces. The so-called art of drink slapping requires above-average aim and a penchant for easy drama, as sure as the night has always sided with fireworks and capes caught in streetlights. It's all in the shoulder. Imagine you are putting out the flames engulfing an orphanage in Eastern Europe. Imagine you are a shock jock at a wet t-shirt competition, breaking a bottle of champagne over a ship called Sleaze. But what a waste. What a waste like overdoing it at a hotel buffet before attending your friend's 21st and waking up to messages asking if you had shrimp cocktail for dinner. Two-time Oscar nominee Dorothy Parker was an, an iconic enthusiast of gin, and I wonder how many martinis she threw in men's faces. She was surrounded by men who deserved a drink or two to the face, and we're talking drinks made in the 1930s and 40s, which were strong enough to start world wars and end careers. Hollywood blacklisted Dorothy Parker with her portrait adorning a bottle of gin that my bartender is using to make me a dry martini with a twist that I will savor and will not throw in anyone's face. Unless they dare to disagree that too much is undoubtedly the best Spice Girls single. <laughs> yes, even better than Stop. Okay, fine. I suppose we all have our triggers, but that still doesn't excuse such behavior or a callous waste of artisanal gin. 
We live in a wasteful world of wasted time and wasted opportunities. Landfills overflowing with ideas, seas filled with plastic upon which ships carry our trash all the way to China, and skies clouded with the anguished cries of those who are foolish enough to read comments on articles about what constitutes racism. Comments by men who have blank profile photos and believe it's only racism if you take offense. So, if people were never offended, then racism would not exist. Men with usernames like Hot Rod 69 and Real Gareth Morgan. <laughs> with a tendency to hang around in staff kitchens forcing their Star Wars fanfiction on unsuspecting colleagues. These are men who deserve a drink to the face on the hour, every hour, until there are no drinks left to throw, all the bars in the country depleted of their stock, so we are forced to gather in town halls to berate elected officials for allowing everything wrong in this world to happen. Then someone dare suggests that maybe throwing drinks isn't the best way to express ourselves, that maybe the reason we throw drinks at all is because we've forgotten how to have meaningful conversations that don't end with us blocking each other on social media. And we'll all sit in silence thinking about what we've done, about the people we've given platforms to, to dictate when women should have children, or suggest that the gays have an agenda. Of course we have an agenda. <laughs> How else will you learn to pull off a smart, casual romper? <laughs> the punchline is that we all deserve a drink to the face, but no one gets it. Because to get it would mean all of us admitting social liability, and who knows what sort of therapy that would require. You and a kind stranger running through your past traumas like a Netflix binge. Someone in the back of the hall coughs. Someone else cracks a window to let in some fresh air. Outside, the fires spit and lurch. Bridges burn faster when you build them over rivers of thrown martinis. Thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll just read one more. This is a, another new poem. Uh, this is called... Mike Hosking again. Uh, <laughs> this is called Mike and Carl and Duncan and Martin. Every time a white man writes an opinion column bemoaning the caps-locked hardships of being a white man, I feel myself dying in a way that hasn't been fashionable for several centuries, like being torn apart by a velociraptor while I'm busy discovering the meaning of life, or strapped to a torture rat because no one trusts a Gaijin with a Kiwi accent and a creative writing degree. Why be opaque in poetry where you can just piss on the graves of war heroes, then write about it to start a public debate about pissing on the graves of war heroes? Maybe one day, after their words have repeatedly stabbed me in the eyes enough times, I'll die in a more contemporary manner, a clickbait demise designed for maximum social media engagement, like being shot in the back while foraging for herbs with my gender-fluid friends, or a live stream of me starving to death while trying to save for a house. I used to dream of paradise, but paradise is too exhausting. Nowhere is safe from white men hot takes screamed at you on the daily. But not all white men. Type all the white men on the internet in unison when they should be writing Hamlet. <laughs> My most memorable one-night stands have been white men, so I can attest to the good some of them contribute to the world. <laughs> I let them think they were in charge while they claimed my mouth and my body for their own histories. I didn't even tell them where I'm really from. <laughs> but if only they knew the whole time I was thinking about how I would use them for a poem, how their dirty words are sodden gold in my ears. I whip my head back and forth, shaking the pardons and contradictions loose, 
giving myself permission to be aggrieved, to march onto the internet with a fist raised high and look them in the eyes unblinking. Thank you. Press taste, everybody. Oh, I'm having so much fun. Uh, so we have one more uh, writer for you this evening, um, Annalise Jochens from Northland and lives in Wellington. She is the author of Baby, which won the Hubert Church Best First Book Award for Fiction. Please put your hands together for Annalise. Cynthia can understand how Anahita feels just by looking at her body. Today, is wearing a pair of loose orange shorts. Their quality is obvious from the way they stretch at the crutch when she lunges. Her singlet is very tight, and Cynthia thinks it must be one of those sophisticated ones that button up between the legs. If it is that sort, it must be extra tight down below when she leans or bends because Anahita is very tall. <laughs> That's just it. The leaning and bending, that's how Cynthia knows. Anahita yearns for strain. She courts it with her every movement, and Cynthia can see this because she feels precisely the same way herself. She's squatting now, and she's been squatting for minutes. The agony in her thighs and ass is desperate and profound, but she continues to squat, as instructed by Anahita. Classes are held on Anahita's lawn, surrounded by bushes, forceful, gloriously cultivated bushes that spill against each other and onto the lawn, pressing the seven members of Anahita's class. It hurts, the squatting, but Anahita wants it to, so Cynthia holds the pose. Anahita herself is over by a lavender bush, kneeling and telling motivating things to a very puffed-out middle-aged woman. She can't always be motivating all of them, Cynthia understands. They've got to take it in turns because Anahita doesn't have a microphone and her throat gets sore. <laughs> now she yells that it's time for everyone to plank. <laughs> that was... Thank you. <laughs> I don't... Okay. Um, how to describe Cynthia's feelings. How to catch the sensations so hot in her body and hold them still enough to feel their edges. It's out of exhaustion, not disrespect, that she stops planking and sinks down into the grass for a brief rest. Her whole body hurts in the most exquisite way. There are daisies, and she spots three of them by her nose in a near-perfect line, evenly spaced. She picks one and dabs the soft yellow on it in its centre, smears gold on her wrist. The lawn isn't wet, but it's got that good grassy taste and smell. Something big is happening inside Cynthia and all around her. She feels herself on the cusp of some enormous event of infinite meaning. She licks some grass thoughtfully, then nibbles a bit and spits it gently back out. She loves the blades, furry and soft on her tongue and pauses to wonder, how must it feel to be Anahita and to instruct? There's such luxury to Anahita's body. Such glory in it. All of her is the same brown flexing into shades under the sun. Just looking at her helps Cynthia feel the stirring and readiness for action held in her own belly. Soon, she feels sure, 
Anahita won't be able to resist her in such repose among the other exercises. She'll press a shoe into Cynthia's back, and Cynthia will get up, panting, and work out a bit more. For now, she watches the little bugs. They're very fit, clearly jumping from blade to blade and scuttling <laughs> along the edges. Bugs don't have feelings. And if there's one thing Cynthia's learned from Anahita's classes, it's that feelings are a hindrance in the game of physical excellence. And then I skip forward, page 13. <laughs> Once they've stretched, Anahita comes over to see how Cynthia's feeling. She pats her own hot cheeks, and Cynthia does the same. They exhale together. The only male class member's petting his poodle at the gate with one of the ladies. Cynthia can't think of much to say, but she smiles and shrugs. Anahita grins back, and everybody follows her inside. Anahita's house is quite big, Cynthia supposes, and there are things around, half-read books and not completely drunk teas. A big dog roves in circles at the edges of rooms, pausing at the doors shut inside because of the poodle. The snooty woman, Evelyn, gives her cat a mandarin from Anahita's table. Cynthia's about to go after Anahita to help her make everyone's drinks, but Evelyn sits down at the table and says, hmm, in a very pointed way. Mmm, another lady says, her friend. It isn't just me then, Evelyn says. The quality of these classes is definitely slipping. <laughs> Sorry, um, you just stole her mandarin, Cynthia says. She looks around the table and there are no expressions of outrage on her classmates' faces. Several people are nodding slowly, particularly a woman in a bright orange sweatband. Evelyn's main friend, her sidekick. Well, her friend says, her eyes glimmering with excitement. At the facility, her classes were incredible. I mean, really, she was the best. Excuse me just a second, Cynthia starts up, surprised at the high noise of her own voice. Anahita's mum died, do you know? That was well over a year ago, Evelyn says quietly. Cynthia's loud this time. So her mum fell off a horse, rolled down a cliff, banged her head on a rock and died. Everyone is silent. The man coughs and Evelyn puts on her cardigan. They've all noticed at once, a moment before Cynthia, Anahita standing in the doorway. They all look away at the table or out the window except Cynthia who can't. Anahita blinks with her hands on her hips, waiting for an explanation. Annalise Jorkins, everybody. Just for my own amusement, can we all let out a titter? And a cackle? Oh, it warms my heart. I'm going to practice my cackle later so that I can bring it back into my life because I feel like I've been, it's, been, it's been lacking. Um, thank you so much for coming along. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. Thanks so much to the writers that we heard from, uh, Eric Kennedy and Megan Dunn and Chris Teeth and Annalise Jockins. Let's give them a round of applause again.
And thanks so much to the Word Festival for putting on such wonderful things. Please do go and check out lots of other things this weekend. It's a real joy to have something like this happening in Christchurch, so make the most of it. And thank you to The Piano for hosting us. Have a lovely evening. All of these people's books are for sale, so you should go buy them. Good idea. Great. Good. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your evening. Goodbye. Goodbye.